I think the main thing is one that we hear all the time is, is that treat other people the way you'd want to be treated. Uh, I think that's the way I try to live my life is that everybody have rights and it may be somebody else may disagree with you, but then I would still say treat other people the way you want to be treated. For Janetta Williams, caring about others in her community means more than showing kindness and offering a helping hand. It means doing the hard work of making that community more safe and just for everyone in it. I'm Michelle Welch from Utah Women's Walk, and this is Legacies, a podcast dedicated to preserving the inspiring stories and wisdom of Utah women. Janetta Williams has served as the president of the NAACP for the Idaho, Nevada, and Utah branch for nearly 30 years. She served 20 years on the West Valley Police Citizens Professional Standards Review Board and spent time on the Utah State Bar Ethics and Discipline Committee. The list goes on. I spoke with her in 2014, along with my UVU student, Tom Hawkins. I was born in a small town called Clayton Chapel, and it was in Oklahoma, which is roughly about 60 miles east of Oklahoma City. And I have 13 altogether brothers and sisters, and I was the third oldest uh, in the family since uh, roughly around several years ago. Then we, I had a, a several deaths in the family, brothers and, and a sister. And so now we have the t- 10. I have 10 brothers and sisters at this time. I think some of the uh, important memories that I have is family and togetherness, love for one another, being able to get along, especially with as many brothers and sisters that I had. So we always make sure that we always stay stuck together. We were in school and somebody else was uh, what they call maybe not like bullying or one, then of course you had to deal with everybody, all the rest of the brothers and sisters. So we, we had very close-knit family and family was everything. So that's the way we were brought up is to make sure that we love one another, we take care of one another, and that we always helped uh, one another whenever we could. And we still do that. I grew up in Oklahoma and went to school there in Oklahoma and went to segregated schools at, at the early age. And then later, after the Brown v. Board of Education, then we were integrated and then we attended schools, which was uh, you know, white schools at that time. Some of the places like uh, small eating establishments where if you were African-American or a person of color, then you couldn't go in and order food like they do now and eat. They had another area where you had to go in the back door and that's where you had to either eat your food or take it out. So everything was very segregated. And I think just seeing things like that helped me to want to see a change. And things had been changing before, of course, that I got involved, but it was a way for me to continue involvement and making sure that people weren't being discriminated and that everybody had equal rights. I mean, won't believe this, but at an early age, I, I was relatively shy, I think, but I think what made me want to go out and do more is uh, seeing so much hurt in the eyes of people that 
that couldn't do for themselves, that didn't really have a voice for themselves. And uh, I later became the voice of the voiceless and was able to try to talk to people and try to get legislation going, do all of these you know, type of things that uh, I felt that would make a big difference in the lives of not only myself but others. And it wasn't so much about me, but it was about trying to make sure that I tried to help other people. And the women that I admired growing up, would, I would have to say my mother, number one, because uh, she instilled in myself and others, my siblings, family, family love, family, whatever that was going on in the family, more or less stayed in the family. So I, I would admire my mother for everything that she did to instill in me all of my values that I have today. And then my teacher was a female woman, it was first, and her last name was Williams, and it just happened to be that way. But she was a very close friend of the family because in the area you had very you know, close family ties with your teachers and everybody. And I would say one of the other ones was a female teacher named Essie Williams that was very instrumental in the teachings and things to do and involvement and she would always uh, try to tell the, all the other students how they should always value their mothers and I would always make sure that even at a very young age I was always trying to work and save a little money and on Mother's Day I'd always make sure I would give my mother a gift and a little card and so my teacher would always praise me for all of that all the time so I, I think it would be my mother and, and my teacher. So you have a master's degree. How important do you think it is to obtain a college degree? It's very important, especially, it's important for everybody, but especially I see as part of accomplishment for African Americans because even just recently there was a survey that was done and that African Americans with the same education, everything identical to a white person, was getting left behind. They weren't getting uh, job offers. They weren't getting a call back for a job interview. And then if they did end up getting the job, the pay was a lot lower. And that's why we always say that it's good to get an education for everybody, but then especially in the African-American community and people of color. Your contributions to life in the state of Utah are extensive. What would you say are some of the high points and low points in those experiences? When I came to Utah, that was in 1988. I just got involved with the community. I had church, and I just kind of found my way around. I didn't know anybody. People didn't know me. I think some of the high points was trying to get, I'm going to maybe outline just one for now, but one of the ones uh, in particular that I worked with that was so much controversy going back and forth was changing the Human Rights Day to Martin Luther King Jr. Day because a lot of folks would just say, well, we don't want to change it and we don't want to just honor Dr. King. We wanted to have a Human Rights Day. So they had all these, these different excuses why not to do it, but yet uh, we continued to have uh, reasons why it should be, and one of the last states to even have it call the name Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So that was something that went back and forth, even the legislators, even the um, victims' rights bill. When I first approached the legislators to, to let's pass some bills on that, pass some legislation on that, well, 
some of the legislators thought that what I was looking for was try to have a little bit more sympathy toward the inmates, and and that wasn't the case. But what had happened was that I had worked on a case, and this person, the victim, was not notified to come to the hearing at the Utah State Prison. He had wanted to, and he would have wanted to, but they only gave him a day in advance. So I ended up going to the hearing to speak on behalf of that family. And so after that, I thought that they need to have some type of a victim's rights bill where that the victim could be notified in sufficient time that if they wanted to come to make a statement there at the parole hearing, then they could do that. So that's that what started that particular one. And, and it passed. Was the person that you spoke in behalf of for the victim rights bill, were they an acquaintance of yours? Is that how you got involved? No, it, it wasn't. It was a student, African-American student. It's always been other people in the community and people that are seeking assistance and help. Who have contacted you? Yes, who've made contact with me as president for the NAACP. So those were, you know, some things that went back and forth, some background that, that people don't really know about. We're doing good work here in the state of Utah. I'm very pleased that we work with Republican and Democrat because we're nonpartisan. And so we, we're always out there trying to see who can support our, you know, efforts that we're doing. I had the uh, honor of bringing Mrs. Rosa Parks to Utah. And when I first sent the call and she had told me, well, I'll think about it, she told me to call back maybe the next day. And the next day, of course, I couldn't wait. I called her back and uh, she would say, well, I don't know, let me think about it. So it was like, it went on for a couple of different times. And then finally I said, I, you asked me to call you back, I'm calling back again. And so she said, well, since you're so persistent, uh, now, normally I don't come to places in, that's so cold, and Utah is very cold in the wintertime. But this time, because of your, so, your persistence, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an exception and I'm gonna come. So that's what happened. She did. She came and she spoke at the uh, NAACP Martin Luther King Jr. luncheon. And then I had the opportunity to take her to, at the time, the University of Utah and also bring her all the way down to BYU. And we spent a whole day and an evening at, at BYU. And so it was marvelous. Uh, I had the opportunity of sitting down and talking with Mrs. Parks in her hotel room. And, and then it was my birthday, and she said, I know your birthday. We're gonna, we decided her and the person that she was traveling with, her assistant, said that we're going to stay over and we want to take you out to dinner. And I thought that was very nice of her to do. And she gave me a nice gift and a card and she had signed it. And uh, then I would see her other occasions uh, at her national events. And then when she passed, of course, in 2005, I thought it was, everybody was so excited when she came to Utah that it would be an honor to try to name some streets after her. And so I kind of started that. And of course, West Jordan was the first one. We called her the mother of civil rights because she was the one that had sat on that bus. And people say, well, she was tired. Well, she had told me too that she wasn't tired. She was really tired of being treated the way that, that, that African-Americans were being treated. And it came a time that she needed to make a difference. And she did. Will you tell us about the experience with Nelson Mandela at the White House? I 
went and had opportunity to shake his hand, talk to him. I told him that I admired all the things that he had done, and he said, no, I admire you for everything that you do. So, it, you know, it was nice conversation, nice lunch, back and forth, and so it was an honor to, to meet President Mandela, in fact, because I did meet him, was able to talk to him. I was able to, after he passed, then I held a statewide tribute to President Mandela, uh, downtown Salt Lake City. And we had the governor, some mayors, different folks, folks from all backgrounds come and speak uh, about President Mandela. You obviously served on a national level with some very important people you, that you call friends. And you had mentioned Merle Evers Williams and Julian Bond. And what was it like working with these two civil rights icons? It, it was uh, really good working with them because when you're friends with them, you don't really consider them as uh, civil rights icons, but you know that other folks do. Merle Evers Williams is, of course, a very good friend, and she has been very good throughout all of her different works with the association. She had remarried after her Edgar Evers was killed uh, during the civil rights movement. With He was registering people to vote, and then she had it was so dedicated to the NAACP that although he was almost on his deathbed, he wanted her to, to go to the NAACP meeting and run for the for the position of chairman of the board. And she did win by one vote. That that's why we tell people when one vote does make a difference. And she was did get the chance to get back home and get to see him just before he passed away. And then later her son passed away. And so she's had a lot of different things that personal things that she's had to deal with and a lot of times that people don't really know because they don't know her and so but she's a very strong woman and so those two friendships I, I have really admired to have because then it's odd when you say they're friends because they you know them and I'll see maybe Julian recently on, on some TV shows or something, and I'll send them an email and say he did really good on them. So for me to be able to just say that you did good on an interview, it's something that I think is good because then you kind of build those friendships, and that's good. You were asked to serve as mayor for a day at the Olympic Village during 2002, during the Winter Olympics. Can you tell us about that experience? Yes, in fact, it was Mitt Romney. Uh, had asked me to serve and of course I said yes because we were everybody was so thrilled that the Olympics was in Utah and to be a part of it being doing that and being a part of the Olympic Village was an honor for me I had the opportunity of taking a picture with the other folks during the Olympics and then I also had the honor of wearing uh, a jacket I had a jacket that had my name on it, mayor for the day and everything. With your professional life and all the public service, how have you balanced or juggled work, family, and social life? Okay, I think part of my work, family, and social life comes from uh, a lot of times I'll get so busy in projects and then I look forward to uh, traveling in other countries. I've been to South Africa. I've been to Hong Kong, they're having the unrest there. I've been to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, to Australia, to just a lot of different countries. South Africa was, was always nice because 
then they had so many different things uh, with the, the pictures and then the historic monuments of President Mandela and what was going on with apartheid, those type of things. So I always like to go and, and see what kind of history they they have and take a lot of pictures. I've been to Shanghai and just a lot of places, and so I like to kind of balance my life by traveling the world and see how other people live, see some of their historic things that they do. So what do you foresee in the future for you personally? Anything different? Personally, no. I almost can't see myself without doing work for the NAACP. Is this a full-time job for you? It is, but guess what? I don't get paid. Seriously. All the, all, all the work that I do, all the work that I do, the wee wee hours in the morning when people see emails coming from me at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, I, I don't get paid a penny for it. Uh -huh. I, I do it because I'm just so dedicated to it. What advice do you have for younger women in, in Utah? I, I think I would tell young women to try to get involved in an in a organization or a cause and if they have meetings, we don't realize people can't come to every meeting, but if they would at least uh, take a membership, join, maybe they may have to pass out pamphlets or attend an event, I would just say to try to get involved because there's so many different causes. And I think if they would find maybe one cause in one of those organizations, then it would benefit them because then they would have a, a broader uh, look on what's going on in the community and ways that they can help. So there's all types of things going on, but if they would just find maybe something that they might be more interested in than something else to, to just get involved. Are there any words of wisdom or maxims that you've lived your life by? I think the main thing is one that we hear all the time is, is that treat other people the way you'd want to be treated. I think that's the way I try to live my life, is that everybody have rights, and then it may be somebody else may disagree with you, but then I would still say, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And I think that's the way I, I've lived my life. What would you like most to be remembered for? I think I would mostly uh, like to be remembered for my fight for justice, my fight for uh, equality, and trying to make a difference in not only Utah but the world, and then make a difference in individual lives. It's wonderful to see you again and be with you again since our interview, our first interview with the Utah Women's Box. Thank you for joining me for a few minutes. There's been so much um, happened in the past few years. We definitely need a little update on your life since our interview. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is when this partnership came together with the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Yes. Uh, was it in 2017 or 18? I'm sure you were. It was, it was 2018. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came about and what your feelings are about that. Sure. It was our national headquarters working with leadership here in Salt Lake City with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on some humanitarian efforts, looking at ways to improve uh, the 
folks in a lot of the areas like Detroit, uh, Chicago, uh, San Francisco, some of those places like that, they were mostly looking at some of those areas, trying to see what it is that they could do to help people being able to look for jobs, seek jobs, polishing up on resumes, uh, all of those different things. And then they came together and, and did, you might want to say classes on doing those type of things. And so that was the first embarkment on that particular partnership. But long before that, the NAACP in Salt Lake City, we've had a longstanding relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So this wasn't just the beginning in 2018. That's what we want people to realize, because what happened is that you didn't hear a whole lot of it until uh, the 2018, but then years back before that, President Hinckley spoke to our NAACP regional conference uh, that we held downtown in Salt Lake City, Utah, and that was roughly in maybe 2008. So it's been many years, and he came at my request to speak for our Region 1. Our Region 1 is Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii, and California. So you have been president of the Salt Lake chapter. You've done it for all these decades. Well, really your whole life, you've been working for racial harmony, yes. for, for cooperation. Are we getting better? Are things looking up? It seems like in the past few years, it's not looked so good. What do you think? Well, things are getting better. We There's so much turmoil going on. This, you know, we see so much going on. Once you think that things are getting a little bit better, and then all of a sudden it, it starts uh, eroding and getting worse. And then we're trying to rebuild all the things that we've won before, for instance, like voting rights. And then all of a sudden, Supreme Court stripped portion of that, of Section 5 out. And so it weakened, and now we're fighting to get a stronger voting rights. And then we have so many states that are suppressing and wanting to suppress voting. So it's just an ongoing effort to continue fighting for civil rights. And you're good at it. I know that you've done tremendous work there. I noticed recently a press conference regarding Juneteenth, a time dedicated, of course, to remembering the end of slavery. I noticed you were sitting by Reverend Amos C. Brown, and I also know that you're a Baptist. In this press conference, it talked about this new initiative, working with the LDS Church with humanitarian aid and scholarships. Are you hopeful about those initiatives? It's, it's a very good initiative. In fact, I was sitting, the way the picture was taken is probably the picture that you're referring to. It looked like I was sitting maybe next to him, but I was actually sitting just uh, behind him and sitting next to Elder Jack Gerard. And then President Nelson was sitting next to, I'm sorry, was sitting next to Reverend Brown. It's a good effort that they come together and was working on trying to put some things together in recognition of, of some of it was in recognition of slavery, the $250,000 for Reverend Brown to be able to take maybe college students to Ghana and for them to learn more history about when slaves were sent over 
to the United States. That was one effort. And then the other effort was scholarship going through the United Negro College Fund. And those funds will be uh, generated to the students through that uh, scholarship fund. And that would that was really uh, a great announcement to help students to be able to go to college and graduate without worrying about funds. It, it seems like a really good initiative to me. And when religions work together like this, is that a positive way to help to end injustice? Is our religions, various religions, are they responsible or do they have responsibility in helping to alleviate some of the injustice and things that are going on? I think when communities see religious uh, groups working together, it's a positive, something very positive. And it does help on race relations. And that's just like working with, say, for instance, last year, we worked together with law enforcement and legislators. And as a whole, when people and folks and groups, organizations, churches work together for the good, it makes a, a better outcome than if folks sit back and criticize and not tend to try to understand one another. Yeah, that's well said. And finally, I wanted to know your opinion, how people in Utah, how can we help to overcome racism? What can we do that we're not doing currently? I, th I think there's several things that folks in Utah can do to help eliminate racism. One would be to maybe read or maybe talk to people that don't look like them. There's books, there's movies to, to better understand what's going on and maybe what's happened in the past. There's a, another documentary. There's a lot of documentaries out there. And I think if people would try to make sure that they can go and study and learn a little bit more about other races would make it good. Good. So, so education is definitely important. What about being politically involved and helping to provide resources too? Can we do better there? Yes, there's, that's always a plus as well. Resources to the different communities because people are, uh, a lot of times it's not making donations, it's not doing some of the things that people think maybe they don't know really what to do. But it's maybe just get involved sometime and, and have a better understanding. Good. And that comes with good communication. Well, thank you for all that you do and continue to do. You're remarkable. Well, I have uh, continued to be extremely busy, not only here in Utah, but I am also part of some of the national NAACP efforts, as well as uh, police reforms, too. So I continue to, to be extremely busy and look forward to try to help wherever I can in, in our community, in our state. Thank you. We want to thank Janetta Williams for her interview. We honor her for her contributions in seeking justice and equality for all citizens of not only Utah, but across the world. If you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, as well as subscribe and rate us on iTunes. To listen to the full interview of Janetta Williams and other remarkable Utah women, visit our website at utahwomenswalk.org. A special thanks to our supporters, Denise and Alan Alexander, Roman and Ann Takasaki, Julie Bagley, and Shauna Duke. 
And thank you to our writer and producer, Tamara Kemsley, and our editor, Ron Cool, as well as Catherine McIntyre from the UVU Archives. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Legacies.